everybody. I am actually going to do something very special this episode, and it involves one person, me, myself, and I. So usually I would have a guest on or have somebody else helping me talk through whatever topic that I am engaging with on the podcast for that particular episode, but this is going to be another installment of the Meaningful Monologues, which the last one I did was, I think, over a month ago now of the music and beauty one. So Um, I wanted to get back into this Meaningful Monologue series because I wanted it to be an outlet for me to actually engage with some of the more um, opposition to Christianity itself. So I have, you know, the Wonky Wednesdays are more speculation and interesting thoughts based on scripture. Sunday series are things that we are very confident in and can um, glean from scripture accurately. And then I wanted these Meaningful Monologues to be things that are Um, hard topics interacting with the truths of Christianity. So for this week, I picked up a book a few, I think like a few weeks ago now, by Bertrand Russell called Religion and Science. And if if you guys don't know who that name is, Bertrand Russell is actually a very famous philosopher and mathematician. He died in 1970. He was um, a graduate and a fellow at Trinity College in, at Cambridge University in um, the UK. He, he also did a bunch of lectures in the US. Um, he got a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. Um, you, you know, he wrote a ton of books. He, he lived um, from 1872 to 1967, so the bulk of his career was um, in the 20th century. And he was uh, an agnostic, a pacifist, a humanitarian, so he's not exactly. Uh, a theist at all. He did not believe in God. He was functionally an atheist and he was also a really great philosopher and had a lot of really good thoughts. So I picked up this book because I wanted to do, um, you know, start interacting with ideas and things that are just completely contrary to the faith and just seem to blow Christianity right out of the water. And um, we don't have a rebuttal to. So I want to deal with that. So I'm flipping through the book. That's how I'm going to be doing this. So bear with me. I don't have all the quotes right in front of my face, but I kind of just want to do a brief overview of some of the big topics that he goes over in the book, and you guys can pick it up too. It's uh, about 200-ish pages, something a little over 200 pages, and it's been a great book so far, and I really enjoyed reading it. So it's called Religion and Science, and he starts off the book with just a chapter on the grounds of the conflict um, between religion and science. Nothing honestly spectacular in this. He just kind of sets the stage of you know, the church has historical creeds or, um, you could also call that orthodoxy, you know, um, positions of doctrine, positions of faith that the church has held for a very long time. And then he talks about the onset of, um, science coming along based on observation that would combat some of this dogmatic creedal language that, Um, Christians or any religious faith would purport in in, um, their religion. So the second chapter after he sets the stage is um, the Copernican Revolution. So um, Copernicus lived in the 16th, sorry, the 15th and 16th century from 1473 to 1543. 
and he was the first to really start working on um, modern-day astronomy and what we think about the heavens. And before that, there was a Greek called uh, Ptolemy that had a view of the the heavens above that obviously wasn't <laughs> wasn't correct. Just like Aristotle's physics is not correct, and um, people come along like Newton later and uh, get rid of some of Aristotle's physics and Galileo. Um, but Ptolemy. Um, so this is what he says on page 22. This partially deprived his system. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Um, Copernicus adhered to the view that their orbits, that of planets, must be circular and accounted for irregularities by supposing that the sun was not quite in the center of any one of the orbits. This partially deprived his system of the simplicity, which was its greatest advantage over that of Ptolemy and would have made Newton's generalization impossible if it had not been corrected by Kepler. So, you know, it's all about physics and how the heavens move. But the the big idea here is we have John Calvin writing, um, who's a contemporary of Copernicus during this time, saying, basically calling him a heretic and really coming against him. And John Calvin is uh, one of my favorite theologians. And he's saying these things. He says, the world is established and it cannot be moved. He would quote that often, basically going against what Copernicus is saying because he, he puts the, um, the sun at the center of the universe rather than um, the earth. And just interacting with that for a second, you know, when Calvin does something like that, you know, these guys are obviously not scientists or understand the natural world as well as scientists do. Now, does that mean they're further from the truth? I would say they're much closer because they understand the metaphysical realities that uh, underpin all of, re- all of reality itself, namely that there's a God, the ultimate metaphysical claim. But um, Copernicus is seemingly going against um, the Bible, the Bible's own words that the world is established. It cannot move. And Copernicus is saying the earth moves and revolves around the sun um, in, a, in a circular fashion. And that is, um, in that time, heresy. Now, should it have been heresy? No. When we read the Nicene Creed, we don't see any of um, these statements being uh, made as a matter of Christian orthodoxy. They, they would... Uh, the Catholic Church would combat Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo all throughout um, the work they were doing, which was good work and was helpful to understanding the natural world 100%. Um, but, but when the theologians come against these men, it's because I think it's more they see it as attack on ecclesiology, on the authority of the church, rather than um, actually doing just good science and then realizing it doesn't actually combat scripture at all. So when scripture talks like this and, um, oh my goodness, he used Roman numerals. So I don't even know what Psalm it's in, but when he says, when there's a Psalm, it says the world also is established and it cannot be moved. You know, um, David or whoever wrote that Psalm is not making a physical statement about the nature of, um, the earth itself. This is, this is, again, you know, the Bible is a theological book. It presupposes the existence of God. The language can be metaphorical or 
analogous or apocalyptic or poetic or narrative. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different um, writings like that in the Bible, and the Psalms are definitely very poetic and not not trying to make a truth claim about the nature of the earth, but just the fact that the world is established and that it is um, God made the earth for a reason, um, if that makes sense. So I would say that's the big idea there, and there's not actually this um, fight between religion and science here. But uh, Calvin, who is one of my favorite theologians, seemed to think so. And I would obviously side with um, Copernicus on this one rather than Calvin. Um, He is kind of extrapolating scripture out more than is meant to be read into it, I think. Um, So yeah, so then he he moves on. He starts with Copernicus because he kind of creates um, the first, he's the first to kind of go against this teaching of the church that the earth is at the center of the universe and it has to be because of these texts and the script and the scriptures um so then kepler comes around he copernicus actually did have some sense of uh, persecution for his beliefs kepler didn't really come into contact with the with the church um you know because of i guess people were warming up by then it says um Bertrand says the next great step in astronomy was taken by Kepler who lived from 1571 to 1630 who though his opinions were the same as Galileo's never came into conflict with the church the Catholic authorities forgave his Protestantism because of his scientific eminence Um, they were appreciative The, the emperor appreciated his ability to um, predict what would happen in the heavens I guess so he publishes a few books that continues to move this along, um, this new view of astronomy, and then Galileo comes along from 1564 to 1642. He's the most notable scientific figure of his time. Um, I'm reading um, on page 31 now, um, both on account of his discoveries and through his conflict with the Inqu- Inquisition. So he... Was uh, his dad was an impoverished mathematician, but um, you know he, those people were actually kind of ostracized from society. The the mathematicians, the you know we hold them in high regards now that they're doing good work and figuring things out. But during that time, it was not really a noble task. It was more the theologian would be the noble job. Um, but he figures out that there is a sense of direction to the motion of bodies, velocity, and also change in velocity. Um, a change in velocity or direction of motion uh, acceleration. So he starts to drop things off of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and kind of goes against uh, um, Aristotle's physic of how things would be um, accelerate as they're dropped and actually gets a more um, re- real understanding of masses and gravity. Um, so Galileo discovered that apart from the resistance of air, when bodies fall freely, they fall in a uniform acceleration. And again, these are just things that God put intrinsically in the earth. That's Again, these are not coming against any orthodox teaching. There's no orthodox teaching on the nature of gravity or how things fall. Um, but the authorities felt threatened because there is another way to get truth. Um, 
we know this as, like I've been talking about, the natural law, the natural theology. Uh, science used to be called natural theology because it was the study of the natural world. Um, but it was natural theology because it was still um, kind of reined in by the scriptures, what the scriptures taught about reality. So if you tried to observe something that went against what the scriptures taught, then you were immediately ostracized and thrown out. Now, is that an accurate reading of scripture and does scripture allow for that? Well, it seems to, uh, you know, Romans 1 and 2, that there are ethical things that you can glean and reach apart from scripture. And I don't, I don't think that there are any, any teachings or anything, uh, you know, we see in the scriptures in Genesis that there are people after Cain and Abel's time that are learning how to work with metal and learning how to create instruments and do all sorts of things. The Bible does not condemn this task of discovering things, understanding things and learning how to interact with the world as humans, we're called to go out and have dominion over it. So I do not imagine that um, somebody actually reading their Bibles would uh, combat somebody trying to figure out the natural world. It actually seems to be the Catholic um, Church, that authoritative structure in the church feeling threatened by this other sense of truth when Basically, they didn't let the lay person have access to the scriptures. They were they would preach in Latin, so nobody could really understand. They would read the Bible in Latin. It was in Latin. It wasn't translated in the languages until Martin Luther comes around in the Reformation and starts to make this the God's word more accessible to more people. So that would be my assessment of what's happening there. Now, Bertrand Russell paints it as religious people cannot handle science and they think it is at odds with some of their teachings because of these texts and because of these great theologians said this and i mean calvin just was not understanding what was going on there and thought the bible was teaching something different when you know these texts really don't mean anything um so yeah i i i that would be my assessment of what's going on here now bertrand russell's trying to use that as an argument for the kind of um, unusefulness of religion, but I don't think he is doing a very good job for those that actually have um, religious claims. I don't think he's really understanding that he's, um, again, kind of strawmanning. I see this in a lot of books that are agnostic or atheist or interacting with uh, religion. They always attack what religious people do rather than... um, what the actual claims of their holy book is. So for me, it's the Bible, which is the only truth. There's no other holy book. It's only the Bible. But again, for any theist, there's claims in their holy books that I don't think, or or their claim of God that um, uh, most atheists don't actually understand because they never, hardly ever actually deal with the intellectual claims about God, but it's more just emotionalism or attacking what people did. So this whole chapter was what the Catholic Church did in their authority, persecuting certain people for wanting to learn about the world, um, Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo. So that's the first chapter about the Copernican Revolution. Um, I, I mean, yeah. So let's just move on. The third chapter, So it, it started off with astronomy, and uh, he says this on page 49, and the third chapter is about evolution. He says, The scientists have developed in an order the reverse of what might have been expected. What was most remote from ourselves, namely, um, you know, the heavens is what he's referring to, was first brought under the domain of law and then gradually what was near. First the heavens. So, so, yeah, so he does qualify. First the heavens, next the earth, then animal um, and vegetable life, then the human body. And last of all, as yet very imperfectly, the human mind. 
Okay, so <laughs> he is making a bold claim there. I mean, this guy's living in the 20th century, and there's a lot of things that we have figured out that <laughs> would kind of go against what he's claiming here, that we have this kind of a perfect understanding of the laws that govern um, the heavens, the earth, animal and vegetable life, human body, and the human mind. Um, <laughs> because he was living in a time of the rise of machine functionalism, of the human mind, that the mind is purely material. And uh, we've actually now completely flip-flopped back to the ancient view of uh, mind-body dualism. That's now where the contemporary philosophy is at because of things like qualia of consciousness and um, a few other things that are really hard to understand. But that is my assessment and my education at a secular university telling me about the nature of philosophy. So I, I yeah, that's a, that's a starting claim, and yes, it does seem kind of reverse in the order of what we'd expect. We would think maybe the things that we're closest to first before we understand astronomy, but that actually the uh, astronomy things came first because of I think the instrumentation was is um, more easily accessible then. With uh, I think telescopes were created first and, and ways to observe the heavens, and then we had microscopes and things that actually help us get to the atomic level to understand things at a, at a, at a smaller scale. So cool. Um, on page 51, I marked this page because let's see. Yeah. So in this chapter, he hits on in terms of evolution, what, what came first was geology. Um, the evolution of geology over time based on plate tectonics and uh, you know various processes like that and then we got get to actual biology in evolution um, i don't know why i marked this page but basically he sets the scene for you know the the christian the bible's presentation of humanity that you know adam and eve were created and then they they um sin and now animals are taking um, preying on each other and thistles and thorns grow and there's different seasons and all these things happen in a result of the flood and eventually we have uh, sorry in, in a result of sin and then eventually we have the flood um, it was not thought that man had grown better since but the Lord had promised not to send another universal deluge and now contented himself with occasional erupt eruptions and earthquakes so basically ridiculing um the idea of judgment for sin based on there that God um, kind of arbitrarily says I will never flood the earth again but I will do minor floods and minor eruptions minor earthquakes but I'll never fully shake the earth again um, don't really know that just seems to be pure ridicule, ridicule and not <laughs> again just projecting our human minds onto what we what we would do in that in that scenario but I, I would chalk that up to if God does indeed do that, then that would seem pretty gracious and maybe not just something randomly arbitrary he's doing, but now ordering things in such, such a way that occasional earthquakes and eruptions now um, are the norm. Flooding the whole earth would not make sense to be the norm, but I guess Bertrand Russell would think so maybe. I don't know what he would say about that. But basically, we have this narrative from evolution that the Earth is 6,000 years old because um, the date became fixed in 4004 BC by Archbishop Usher, Dr. Lightfoot, Vice Chancellor of the University of Cambridge, who accepted this date for the creation based on the Septuagint and other Hebrew texts. 
So that's the the stage that's set for the time frame. But eventually we start getting these geological um, changes. So Newton suggested a way in which the solar system could have developed from a primitive nearly uniform distribution of matter. But so far as his public and uh, official utterances were concerned, he seemed to favor a sudden creation of the sun and planets as we know them and to leave no room for cosmic evolution. So Newton's was a was a christian um god creates the world immediately and this seems to line up with physics and still actually does with contemporary cosmology um that there was a big bang there was a beginning if we look at the red shifts everything is the lights showing that there is continually speeding away from the center of the universe which means that if we trace that backward and reverse that um speed of light then there seems to be a big bang that is coming from so so basically, he just starts talking about geologists throughout the time that are making claims about how long it takes for some of these things to happen. Um, again, not not observable, but inferences made on observations. Um, this is purely theory. In terms of geology, we've never actually um, witnessed these things happening. We... Yeah, see small microcosms of it, but it is a big claim to put that much trust and faith in an inference somebody is making based on what they see, and especially when things don't match up with the data, like when we find fossils that are protruding vertically through um, a... Oh, through rock layers, like um, they would say, oh, between this rock layer and this rock layer is millions of years or whatever. But there is a bone protruding vertically in it after it's been laid, which would be an odd discovery if it really is millions of years. So, again, there's things we find that would go against the narrative, but um, that doesn't fit their their, um, metaphysical presuppositions that there is no God. Uh, nor was there a flood or anything like that. Uh, although most societies account a flood narrative, even though they were they're thousands of miles apart and haven't had no contact with each other, there is um, it's pretty ubiquitous throughout ancient cultures that there was a flood narrative and all of them, which is odd. So honestly, the geology stuff I'm really not that competent in but i do find it kind of ridiculous sometimes and and i took that in my undergrad doing environmental science i took a geology class and they were telling me all these things that um again are just kind of inferences made on certain observations but you can observe other things that would completely deny that so it's hard to tell what's true all the time when we look at these things um but they would have their conception of how all this works based again on their presuppositions Let's see. So let's just get to the whole actual evolution part. Where's my next thing? So, oh, um, this is a big point, guys. So this is uh, I've thought about this a lot. I've taken a lot of evolution classes in my undergrad and thought about evolution really critically. And I think I have an all right understanding of it and the false claims that are made. So. He says in uh, page 66, another trouble arose from the mere number of the species that came to be known with the progress of zoology. The numbers now known about to millions amount to millions. And if two of uh, each of these kinds were in the ark, it was felt that it must have been rather overcrowded. This is a just super foolish statement by this guy. <laughs> like, I really don't understand how he 
if he believes in evolution, he understands species can um, be changing often. So it seems to be a fairly simple, just based on his worldview, you could have uh, a couple thousand animals with every body plan accounted for and then they quote unquote evolve after they're off the ark into the millions that we see nowadays. But um, I digress. Basically, I hear this all the time. How could uh, you know we have th- we've we've identified this many species? How could he have fit them all in the ark? Well, first of all, the scriptures say uh, two of every kind of animal. Now, kinds to me, when I've done uh, so, I, I took a class in invertebrate zoology, and there are. Um, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species, um, all, all of that, those taxonomy classifications of animals. Now, first of all, one note I want to make is there are genetically – so th- there's different ways you can um, describe species. It can be on can they reproduce. It can be on genetic variability. There's different ways you can claim that you've discovered a new species. Like if they can't reproduce – it used to be before genetics, if they can't reproduce, then they're different species. Um, but now that we have genetics, we can we can do that even more. Now, one thing that they will not tell you or that they make light of is that there are certain strains of E. coli bacteria that can obviously reproduce, and although not sexually because they are single celled um, until they I guess they form biofilms, but they're still single celled and then they're replication. But regardless, they claim that there are E. coli, which is uh, genus and species, Latin terms for the um, bacteria, and they say that they have different strains of bacteria, but they're not different species, yet they're more genetically different than humans are from chimpanzees. So the lines are blurry in what they call species all the time, first of all. So don't let them lie to you and just say that like the way they name these things, again, it's taxonomy. It's human classification of naming animals, which means that it's arbitrary, that we came up with it. We just came up with it willy-nilly. It is useful. It does help us delineate the differences between all of these different animals we have, but it's arbitrary. It could have been different. It's contingent. So I think when the Bible says all the different kinds of animals, I think that that is phyla. I think every body plan, that's what phyla is. It's the body plan of organisms was accounted for on the ark. Now, a majority of the body plans in phyla are marine organisms. So obviously they did not need to be taken onto the ark because the flood was a... um, a water event. So marine creatures were fine. Now land creatures, those, um, we have the worm in terms of phyla, we have different kinds of worms, um, different kinds of insects, the insecta phyla. Um, man, it's been so long now since I've thought about all of them, but there's flatworms, um, annelids, all sorts of different kinds of worms. And then we have, um, the chordata class, which is, um, Organisms that have a notochord that runs down the back, which is basically a primitive version of that's non bony of invertebrate. So, like, uh, there's these things called lancelets that are like little fish that have, they're not spiny, uh, or sorry, they're not um, bony spinal cords. They're kind of like cartilage, maybe. 
something like that, like a harder substance, but it's not exactly a vertebrae. So they're still in their invertebrate category. But then the other cat, uh, phyla that is unique is um, vertebrates. So I think kinds are the body plans available. So maybe it could be I don't I don't know exactly how they divvy up all the ones in between there, like a kingdom phyla order. I, I forget the all the different taxonomy things, but basically it's gotta be one of those higher ones. Species is too arbitrary and too like um hard to come up with what exactly we we mean by species. So for instance, when I think kind of animal, I think there was probably two sets of bears that were taken on the ark. Um, you know, you have a black bear, you have a brown bear. The difference in size is pretty massive. Like the average black bear is around 500 pounds. The average grizzlies uh, probably around a ton, like 2,000-ish pounds, something like that. Um, so they're both bears. They both are shaped. Man, it's something... Something's crazy going on out there. So they're both shaped the same way. They're they're both the same kind of animal. Now, the difference is their size and some other uh, phenotypic characteristics that are unique to them. Uh, Maybe they can reproduce. Maybe they can't. but, But at the end of the day, they really look the same. They're very similar. And I imagine there was just one type of bear that was taken on the ark. And afterwards, the bears began to reproduce. And... Just like how we have taken wolves and made chihuahuas, you know, but that's selective breeding. That's a little more intensive, but obviously, I mean, a thousand years is a very long time. That's a lot of generations, especially of animals with how much they reproduce. So I don't know. It doesn't seem far-fetched to me based on contemporary science that you could get a black bear that if it's living in colder climates and it needs more fat, they continue to pass that down, those genes and um, those phenotypic genes, and they're expressed a certain way, and maybe they blend in more with a brown foliage, and eventually they become brown bears. So I think this is a really foolish claim by him, kind of ridiculing, oh, how can millions of animals fit on the ark? And I would just rebuttal, yeah, obviously nobody believes that, and you'd have to be a fool to believe that, um, because the ark is only some odd... I don't know exactly how big it is. I mean, it was a big boat, but it's not its not enough for that many animals, especially a blue whale. You know what I mean? Things like that. Like, yeah, I, don't, I imagine the marine animals were not on there. And I imagine the land animals, they probably had one kind of element or <laughs> one kind of elephant, one kind of giraffe. It doesn't seem far-fetched that the kinds of animals, one kind of horse thing, and eventually zebras came about because of, I don't know, like just phenotypic expression based on breeding. I mean, I think microevolution makes a ton of sense, and I'm on board, but this macroevolution stuff really makes no sense. So there's a word on that, and that's that's kind of my current understanding of evolution, and I think it's kind of uh, ridiculous when people uh, claim certain things. Uh, and one thing about this book, uh, obviously he was in the 20th century, our um, Darwin did not have the microbiology to bolster and genetics to bolster his theory. Our genetics are now showing that mutations usually end up in destroying the animal rather than helping it. Um, proteins are absolutely impossible to make apart from nothing. So how do you even get life started? And there is no possible way based on genetics to get a difference in body plan. You can definitely get different species. You could get, uh, 
a grizzly bear versus a black bear. That, that, that doesn't seem far-fetched to me, but you'll never be able to turn a fish into um, a land animal. That would never happen. The fish would die. If you put the fish on land, it would die. And when we see these transition species, I, I just imagine that's the unique thing that God put in um, in creations. Things like amphibians that can live on both uh, in both water and um, land. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't see macroevolution panning out with the microbiology we have based on genetics. Um, and I'll, I'll find some stuff to back that up um, and put that in the show notes. Let's, let's see. Um, on page 79 of this evolution chapter, he says, Gladstone was horrified and said that if the principle of the judgment was followed up, it would establish a complete indifference between the Christian faith and the denial of it. When Darwin's theory was first published, he said, expressing the sympathetic feelings of one also accustomed to governing, upon grounds of what is termed evolution, God is relieved of the labor of creation. In the name of unchangeable laws, he is discharged from governing the world. So, obviously, when God creates the world and he says multiply and reproduce and gives the command to both animals and humans to multiply and reproduce and fill the earth. Microevolution seems like the perfect mechanism for animals to go and fill every little niche and fill the earth. We have animals that live at the bottom of the sea in the Mariana Trench. And we have animals that live in the highest mountains and the highest altitudes. There's certain plants and animals that live in those regions like God made animals to be resilient, to adapt, to pass on genetics that would help them adapt, but becoming brand new animals and the the, the claims of macroevolution uh, make no sense. So I do agree that uh, the claim of macroevolution is completely at odds with the Christian faith, which is why I would never accept it. I always reject it, and I think there's good grounds to reject it, let alone – I would reject it if I wasn't even a Christian. If you read modern science, microbiology has – there's no – mechanism at the at the micro level to sustain the macro level changes macro evolution needs it would never happen it's impossible so but but micro evolution we we observe that all the time darwin's finches we observe all sorts of stuff it's very in a few generations a lot of things can change in animals so again I don't think this guy actually understands evolution. I don't think he had the microbiology, neither did Darwin, to actually see if his uh, theory holds water at the micro level. It's actually being destroyed, and it's, um, everybody's abandoning it, which is why we see most um, scientists actually starting to abandon materialism, and atheism is actually on decline now, and we see uh, a flock to new age, because everybody realizes that uh, life is actually impossible at the microbiology level. Um, yeah, so we know how hard it is to make a protein in a lab, and, and we're literally genetically engineering to make proteins, and we need so many starting materials. Just like I was, I brought up in the, a few podcasts ago, the Miller-Urey experiment. They needed so many amino acids and starting molecules to 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 get life going. Um, it's very foolish to think that uh, <laughs> it would just be. Again, you don't get nothing into something, so uh, the claim of atheism is a complete absurdity from the get-go, and evolution is not a mechanism that would produce the kind of life we see today. The next chapter on demonology and medicine. So here he's talking a lot about... (laughs) This was a fun chapter. Um, So he says on page 82... um, 
The scientific study of the human body and its diseases has had to contend, and to some extent still has to contend, with a mass of superstition, largely pre-Christian in origin, but supported until quite modern times by the whole weight of ecclesiastical authority. Disease was sometimes a divine visitation and punishment of sin, but more often the work of demons. So, St. Augustine says... um, I don't know in which book it is, but um, St. Augustine maintains that all diseases of Christians are to be ascribed to these demons. Chiefly do they torment fresh baptized Christians. Yeah, even the guiltless newborn infants. So that was, I guess, uh, his idea why infant mortality was high at that time or something like that. So that is, I, I don't disagree with what he's saying there. I think that was probably the conception of disease historically in uh and, and yeah, before uh, what we have been given from science and natural theology, I, I I probably would have said the same thing as a Christian that, yeah, it's probably just Satan or uh, demons causing sickness because we know there was no sickness in the garden that death entered the world after sin entered the world. Um, so I, I imagine I would make the same thing. Um, that's just probably out of ignorance from the Christians. Uh, I do think I wouldn't completely disconnect it from spiritual warfare. I imagine schizophrenia and mental illnesses we see nowadays actually sometimes are a result of demonic oppression, but because psychology has no um, category for the immaterial parts of that. Um, yeah, I you know depression sometimes is a chemical imbalance. Sometimes it's not, and there's no reason to think that uh, there could be demonic tampering with uh, the human mind that has caused physiological uh, expression. Um, Paul says that some of you in 1 Corinthians have fallen asleep or been uh, ill, been ill or fallen asleep, and fallen asleep was a euphemism for dying back in the day because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unholy manner. So there's, there's that category in the Bible all over the place that the spiritual affects the physical, and the physical can affect the spiritual. Um, obviously, sexual immorality is a sin against your own body, that kind of thing. The, the, the spiritual affects the material. The material affects the spiritual. We're both body and soul. That is the composite of the human. There is a category for this in Scripture. And when the um, historically, when Christians would just chalk it up to spiritual warfare for uh, disease, um, I don't think they were – obviously, they were just completely ignorant. <laughs> so I – again, not a um, polemic against the claim and the nature of God, but uh, an argument against the foolishness of religious people, which is – again, that's a, that's a straw man argument. That's not a good argument at all. And although it is kind of ridiculous that they would think such things, we can understand why. And the people that were even atheists back in that day – or did not believe necessarily in religion or adhere to it, still uh, were ignorant of the same thing. So, again, there's some kind of, um, what's it called, Um, arrogance there that Bertrand Russell is saying, oh, but if I was living in that time, I would have thought clearly about it and understood exactly how um, people got sick. You know, I don't, I imagine Bertrand Russell would have made the same mistake, and um, there's some kind of arrogance there to think that he wouldn't have. So basically, he goes this this whole chapter. He talks about the witch hunts. Sorry, witch witch hunts. Um, so, on page ninety four, he says sorcery was not originally considered a peculiarly feminine crime. Uh, basically, just witches instead of sorcerers. Uh, 
or wizards or whatever. The concentration of um, women began in the 15th century and from then until late in the 17th century, the persecution of witches was widespread and severe. And he, he uh, it was really, oh, here we go. Um, between 14, this is page 95, between 1450 and 1550, a hundred thousand witches were put to death, mostly by burning. Yeah, I, um, just like <laughs> atheists can be foolish and stupid in some things, so can um, religious people. <laughs> you know, the again, back to the natural law thing, uh, because of our sin, we have harmed our ability to reason massively. So... You know, when he's making he, – he's ridiculing Christians for uh, – first of all, that was awful that they would, without rhyme or reason, uh, just based on any suspicion, anybody could claim, oh, I saw this woman um, muttering something under her breath. She was casting a spell. Uh, you need to burn her at the stake immediately. And then they really were not allowed um, to, to – so, so here, here, let me just read it. Um, so thus, towards the end of the 16th century, Flade, rector, or Flade, rector of the University of Treves uh, and chief judge of the electoral court, after condemning countless witches, began to think that perhaps their confessions were due to the desire to escape from the tortures of the rack with the result that he showed unwillingness to convict. He was accused of having sold himself to Satan because he was actually thinking clearly, and was subjected to the same tortures as he had inflicted upon others. Like them, he confessed his guilt. So basically, he's being tortured so bad that he is forced because he just wants his his, tor- his he wants his torment to cease. He just confesses, "Yes, I did sell myself to Satan. Just let me stop being tormented." And in 1589, he was strangled and then burnt. So yeah, these people were kind of wicked. I mean, yeah, that is kind of a heavy reality that that's how that worked. Um, and they were all of these again he talks in here i can't i don't know exactly where it's at but like there were popes that thought that um earthquakes happened because of uh certain witches getting together and conspiring with satan to cause a all sorts of stuff um and i just would say sure there are definitely spiritual warfare things happening that we cannot see but you cannot just um murder people because you think um you, you just have a hunch that they're a witch rather than actually seeing them doing these things. Um, yeah, I would say that was a that was a sad reality that that happened. And uh, I'm on board with Bertrand Russell. I thought that was kind of a foolish thing that Christians did. But you can you can see why. Um, again, you what would you have done in the situation? It's easy it's easy to condemn Nazis for what they did. But uh, you know, do you think that you would have not done what? the Nazi regime did, uh, the SS, you know, if you were enlisted in world war two, would you have done the same thing? Probably just like, uh, I would have cause we're sinners. Okay. So let's see, what did I, I marked something here. So yeah, he, then he just goes in to talk about now we start to get a development of physiology. We understand the circulation system. There's sorry, the circulatory system. Um, Understanding why boils happen, why people get sick, um, all sorts of stuff, and uh, I think that was a good thing that happened uh, in society. And I don't, I don't think that is a triumph of science over religion. I think that's actually um, a gift God has given us in our mind to be able to figure things out. And it's not necessarily, again, it does not disprove just because uh, religious people thought that um, people got sick in the past because of demons only. Uh, there's room in the Bible for 
And when I say room, I mean they were interpreting it wrong. The truth the whole time was there, that the physical can impact the spiritual and the spiritual can, can impact the physical. There's not there's no way there's no reason to think that sometimes um there was just a physical reason why somebody's sick. Uh you can fall and break your leg and it could be for no reason at all. Jesus says, um, you know, why was this man born blind? There must be he says, uh you know, he had not sinned, he was born blind that the um, glory of God might be shown in him. So maybe some people are born blind because of their sin. He says, but this man, no. So I, you know, who knows? Sometimes people are just born blind and there's really no reason for it. Um, no reason that we can um, see easily. Okay. So the last chap- uh, chapter five and six that I'm going to get into kind of go hand in hand. Uh, he talks about the soul and the body. And... You know, historically, he talks about Descartes and Leibniz and Locke and Hume and Kant and all these people that had ideas about what the nature of the human mind was. And for 2,000 plus years, the idea of the human mind was this thing called mind-body dualism, that there's both the uh, the body and then the soul. But we switched the word soul to mind eventually because we want to kind of get away from some of those metaphysical um, ideas. And we get... Kant and Hume with skepticism and all of these, you know, phenomenology and um, everything is just phenomena and there are different ways to receive phenomena through the body, through the eye, from the sun, you know, colors reflecting off of a thing, traveling distance into my eye, through all my nerves, into my brain, my brain processing it, all these things. So how can I trust, you know, what I'm seeing at the end of the day? And, uh, Skepticism really can only be done away with by Christians. Uh, so it became uh, – on page 121, it became evident that phenomena have whatever reality we can know of and that there is no need to assume a superior brand of reality belonging to that uh, – to what cannot be perceived. There may, of course, be such a superior brand of reality, but the arguments proving that there must be are invalid and the possibility, therefore, is merely one of those – Countless bare possibilities which should be ignored because they lie outside the realm of what is known or what may be known hereafter. Um, again, just skepticism, pure reason. Um, you know, Kant can just see these things based on ethics. That's how we can know things are real. Uh, you know, he is big into um, the argument for God based on ethics and uh, morals, that kind of thing. So... Um, Basically, the end of this, again, he was in a time of the philosophy of the, of the mind that there are purely mental events that are happening in our mind, and there are no such thing as um, a, a soul. But the, uh, the contemporary conception of uh, mind-body dualism is not exactly that there's a soul, but that there is a metaphysical component to the mind, namely the qualia of consciousness. And that's where we're at now. So then he gets – because of this purely materialistic view of the mind, um, he says personality is – in one four, page 143, personality is essentially a matter of organization. Certain events grouped together by a means of certain relations form a person. The grouping is affected by means of causal laws. 
Those connected with habit formation, which include memory and the causal loss concern, depend upon the body. If this is true, and there are strong scientific grounds for thinking that it is, to expect a person to survive the disintegration of the brain when they die is like expecting a cricket club to survive when all its members are dead. I do not pretend that this argument is conclusive, so he maintains that it's not conclusive, but this is where he was planting his flag as of reading this book. It is impossible to foresee the future of science, particularly of psychology. Um, and again, he roots a lot of this in psychology because there was behaviorism, machine functionalism, all these things based on observation of psychology, the trends and the nature of the brain. Um, you know, he roots a lot of this in that rather than philosophical arguments of the uh, philosophy of mind. So when philosophy of mind is informed by psychology, yeah, you're going to be a materialist and you're going to think it's just the brain by itself. But if you actually think about some of these things, once you get down to the nitty gritty with things like quality of consciousness, Frank Jackson's color experiment, things like that, you're going to see that there is a metaphysical component to the brain, which I think is the soul that God knits together, which is a mystery on how that happens. But I'm fine with that kind of mystery. There's many more mysteries in what Bertrand Russell was trying to explain to us that somehow... Although there's an infinite amount of causes that lead up to me seeing this plant outside my window that I'm looking at right now, um, somehow I believe that it's there and I just have to trust that it's real even though I have to be skeptical of everything. Um, so he comes down to because of this materialistic view of reality, he ends in chapter 6 talking about determinism. And this is uh, his hypothesis. The hypothesis is as follows from page 150 and 151. There are discoverable causal laws such that given sufficient but not su- but not superhuman powers of calculation, a man who knows all that is happening within a certain sphere at a certain time can predict all that will happen at the center of the sphere during the time that it takes light to travel from the circumference of the sphere to the center. So he is basically making an account that if we can understand all of the causes, there is no chance whatsoever because the brain is purely material based on laws of evolution that we are just robots that are here to survive and reproduce and will do whatever is necessary. And if given the upbringing of our family, if you knew all the facts of me, you'd be able to completely predict my behavior. You would be able to completely determine where this bee will go. If I flip a coin, we would say based on the law of um, – there's a there's a probability law where basically things even out all the time. I can't remember what that's called. But you know, you can flip a coin ten times and you could get heads eight of the ten times. That That's rare, but it could happen. If you do it a thousand times, you're going to get something around 49-51 or 50-50. Uh, those kind of stats. Uh, but every time you flip the coin, if you knew all the wind speed in the room, you knew all the physics impacting all the force from the flip with your thumb, with how quickly and how many revolutions and the torque on it, um, the centri- centripetal force on it from it spinning, all of that, if you knew all of those forces, you would be able to determine without account, with 100% certainty, what side the coin would land. So that is the kind of determinism that he is talking for, which I think is a great conclusion that you must reach if you're a materialist. You cannot do anything otherwise. But the same is actually true in Christianity, that there's actually – you are unable to do anything besides sin. You are free to sin in whatever way you would choose, but you are still obligated to to choose. So there is still a version of determinism in Christianity, but it seems much more freeing and there's a lot more to think about there um, than 
just pure material um, determinism, which is, I think, a more sad reality with less questions answered. And um, obviously kind of deprives humanity of a sense of responsibility for their actions, um, let alone there being <laughs> there's no morals at all in the first place if you are a materialist because um, morals are um, metaphysical. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, that was just half of the book. So I have still, let's see. I still need to read. I need to finish up the last. Um, so those were all his purely scientific understanding of and again this guy was a great mathematician great scientist great philosopher really respect him he was very smart but uh he was indeed a non-believer and had uh, some very bad ideas but um in chapters seven eight nine and ten uh mysticism cosmic purpose science and ethics and the conclusion that is more uh metaphysical things more he's doing more philosophy there than he is exactly doing in these prior chapters and i think they kind of the book splits in half pretty well so he's kind of dealt with where science is at right now with both astronomy the macro level both um in geology coming closer um life itself coming closer medicine the microbiology level the soul and body the even more um close and intimate than even bacteria and pathogens are and then he ends up with determinism based on all the things that he knows about uh, the stages of reality that he has talked about prior. And then he's going to end with and try to root it somehow in a metaphysical way, which I think is going to be hilarious to read. I'm very curious to see what he tries to do. But hopefully I defended the faith well and you guys can see why I never really I, I like to read atheists and understand what the uh, arguments are, but I do think um, it does never it never really holds much water with me. And ninety five percent of the time, even Bertrand Russell, you know, does this. Who's a like one of the head honchos if you want to talk about um, good arguers for atheism. Um, he again is doing this straw man argument that almost every atheist does that oh religious adherents do this therefore you know god must not exist i'm an atheist that that, that makes no sense whatsoever and uh that's a logical fallacy so i hope that he ends the book on a stronger note i'd love to hear some of his other thoughts um and this guy actually is uh you know he died let's see 70 ish years ago you think he died in the 50s and it's 20 yeah, he died, uh, well, 1967. Okay, so I guess around 60 years-ish. But regardless, he is 60 years too late to the game because contemporary science is now abandoning all of the things he's talking about in terms of evolution, geology. Um, it's not where it was, and people are actually flocking towards new age spirituality and, and um Especially with quantum mechanics, uh, there are some very odd things in reality there that are completely kind of upending what he's talking about. And he does hit on indeterminism. He talks about quantum mechanics and how it seems to show free will because he was at, at the conception of quantum mechanics in the 30s and uh, uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, so he, he had interaction with it and understood that it seemingly does bring a uh, free will aspect to it but again uh it's just because we don't understand why atoms choose to do certain things that they do at times so yeah i uh again i think a lot of straw man argumentation here not really anything i'm seeing that uh makes me antsy about my faith or would make me want to um, believe in something else or take maybe a worldview he's presenting not a lot of good argumentation here um would love to hear you guys interact with some of the things i talked about or what you think um 
But at the end of the day, none of these really, he has yet to interact with the claims about God. He has just presented science and what uh, religious people have thought about natural theology in the past. And uh, they were terribly wrong. Uh, and, and, and they were some of my brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm going to see in heaven, <laughs> which is funny. And I'm going to be like, you guys were not very good at natural theology. Some of them were. The Big Bang was posited by a, uh, a Catholic bishop, I think. So, yeah, sometimes they do a good job. I mean, so, most of the scientists, I mean, Newton, Galileo, all these guys, they were they were Christians. So at the end of the day, it still was Christians that, I guess, did the good science, which is hilarious. But uh, he's, he's interacting with them like they are uh, heralds of his worldview. And actually, most of them that he's getting this stuff from is uh, – they're Christians. And it's uh, – it's interesting. So hopefully that was helpful and you guys appreciated that. This is a meaningful monologue with Rocky. Hopefully it wasn't annoying to sit here and listen to me. And I I would like to, as I read these last chapters, have a little bit more, pull more quotes and interact more with like literally what he says. But I, I tried to do that to the best of my ability. So I hope I did uh, Bertrand Russell justice and I didn't interact with him in a bad way. And uh, I imagine if somebody that's read this book that's much smarter than me would say you weren't even you didn't even understand what he was saying but uh that's just that's that's the best i can do right now so hopefully i did a good job and you guys appreciated that go check out the website for the king check out zach's blog i'm going to be putting in there uh my friend alex also has a blog that i think you guys would find useful so check that stuff out and um soli deo gloria jesus is the king